0: being different is good. It's good to have your unique identity. And I started to appreciate that more as I grew older in high school, as I got more involved in my youth group and became really close friends with a lot of my friends there.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So I know everyone is feeling like the world is completely falling apart, which I kind of think it is. And the news is giving people anxiety and also we are also divided due to what we watch and who we talk to in social media and it is just exhausting. My next guest breaks it all down for me because he actually reports the news every day. Monu Raju is the anchor of Inside Politics Sunday and CNN's chief congressional correspondent covering Capitol Hill and campaign politics. Raju is a veteran reporter in Washington, having previously served as a top Capitol Hill correspondent at Politico for seven years. Prior to his time there, he reported for the Hill newspaper, Congressional Quarterly, and Inside Washington Publishers. Manu has been a frequent guest on political talk shows on TV and radio and has won numerous awards including the David Bloom Award for his coverage of the January 6th attack on the US Capitol. And he was actually there. He tells me the whole story. It is completely insane what he went through. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. He has covered so much important news the past eight, nine years at CNN, and it was just an honor to hear his side of things. So I really hope you guys enjoy my interview with Manu Raju. I did my LinkedIn, Wikipedia, YouTube research on you the past few days. Obviously, you were promoted in 2021 as CNN's chief congressional correspondent. And just like, what, two months ago... You begin anchoring the Sunday edition of Inside Politics, so congrats on that new role. I've been watching a few episodes. And I kind of want to start first with the current role. Kind of a basic question, because we see you on screen, obviously. I'm producing my own podcast and hosting it and, and trying to do many different roles with this. So I'm, I'm wondering for you, what is your exact role in developing a story, picking the story? What are you doing behind the scenes?
0: Yeah, a lot. I mean, that's pretty much most of my day is consumed of stuff that you never see on camera. You know, I'll kind of give you a, a sense of how I begin my day and where I end up. So I'll, I'll wake up with a kind of a game plan of like what I want to cover and what I plan to cover. Some of it is pretty clear. Like when there's this no speaker, that's the main story that we're covering that day, and that's going to dominate all of our news coverage. Sometimes it's a little bit less clear. Sometimes in a news cycle like this, we're right-covered Capitol Hill. There are several competing storylines, but there are things that we care about that are going to get attention in the network, which is when aid to Israel, for instance, or expelling George Santos, a resolution that could come to the floor later this week, two central resolutions against two members. So I'll come in knowing that those are the issues that are, one, they probably break through on television. Two, I care about, I'm interested in. Three, have significance to viewers and lives and all of that. So I try to view it that way. And my job is I wake up in the morning and I get through the course of the day is to get obviously new information to present to viewers and for readers when I write stories for CNN.com. So I will come in planning my day thinking about where I need to be to get the key people, whether it's the Speaker of the House or it's a member of the Senate who's dealing with the issues of her aid negotiations, or it's some of the rank and file members in the House who have key votes on whether to expel George Santos. And I'll have to make a decision about where I need to be to catch those members. It's a, the Capitol is a busy place, a chaotic place. There's so much going on at the same time that I have to make the strategic decisions about, okay, I need to be outside the Speaker's office at noon to get this member, or get him. I need to be outside uh, a hearing to talk to Joe Manchin at one. And so I got to be waiting outside the hearing. The Senate is voting at 1130. I can grab some senators on the way into the votes. The House is voting at two. So I got to be outside the House at two. So I have to be strategic on getting that And once I get the information, then I can report it both internally so my network knows what new information I have. And then I go on air and say, all right, I just spoke to the Speaker of the House and this is what he said. Or I just got these members who are saying that they're planning to push for the George Santos expulsion resolution. Here's the latest on that. So all of that takes a lot of planning, a lot of work, being at the right place at the right time, and just long hours waiting outside meetings for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes everything is in that one meeting room where they're trying to figure out who the new speaker of the house is. And eventually they emerge. You figure out what's going on inside, behind the scenes, and then you report it.
1: Seems like a lot of your job is right place, right time. So how do you do that better than others?
0: Oh, well, it's nice of you to say that. I mean, it's, it's a constant challenge because sometimes you're not in the right place at the right time. And one of your competitors is, and you kick yourself saying, ah, I should have been... There, because I could have gotten that information, but instead I'm waiting here and I've gotten nothing. So, there are times that you know that that happens. I try to just be out in the hallways as much as possible. I try to outwork my competition, I try to work be out there really trying to get information for people and not rely on other people to do my work. I mean, so we have a team, we have a great team, and a team that does a lot of hard work. there in the halls, they're working, we kind of feed information off of each other, but I can't just rely on my team to do my reporting, I have to be heavily involved in all the reporting also. So I kind of view my job is making sure that I am able to ask the questions that I think are important and get information because I also have a hard time learning simply by reading other people's notes. Certainly I can, other people's stories, that helps and I understand. But I feel like everyone views a story a little bit differently. So sometimes someone may report something and they may not think this piece of information is all that important. But I may hear it and be like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. And if I'm not there asking the questions or hearing it, I will miss that piece of information which actually could help build the story or help explain something that I can relate to viewers or report on online. So that's why I kind of view it as important for me to be in the center of all the action because it really, really helps me be better at my job, which makes me explain things and report news, break news that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to do.
1: Well, I mean, you are the king of the hill, right? That that was what India broad termed (laughs) you. So I feel like at this point, you should should have like your own room and the capital at this point. It should just like have your name on over a door. And if India Broad says it, it must be true. So I know. mean, I know. I wasn't gonna say that. <laughs> trying to respect our people there, but you know. I kinda I kinda dig the title, so I was gonna go with it. Sometimes, you know, don't dig their titles. It, it was
0: very nice of them to say. That was a nice article they <laughs> wrote. Yes.
1: Yeah, well, we'll stick with that at least that one article. Okay, so current news, you know, you've already talked about some of it, but God Feels like the world is collapsing. The, the war, the two wars. The house playing tug of war to find their speaker. Climate change. These crazy hurricanes now that are developing or have been. I mean, for God's sake, Matthew Perry just passed. I know you've been a journalist for a very long time. I think you've been with CNN since 2015, I believe. Mm-hmm. Does it? This is such an audience question, but does it feel like the world to you is just collapsing faster or? Are news outlets just able to cover more ground than they were before?
0: The news cycle is so much different than it was when I first started. And from a political perspective, Trump changed the news cycle. and Trump got into the news cycle, it grew so much more attention about what was happening in Washington. I remember like, when Obama was president, you know, there were times when, of course, like, Washington was the red-hot story, but it wasn't always the red-hot story. There was fewer reporters covering fewer stories up here, not just with CNN, but really everywhere. When Trump came, everyone ramped up their coverage of Washington. There was so much audience interest and in, about everything that was going on. And there was a lot happening. So it required a significant amount of coverage. And I think that has continued in the post Trump era. And we're still in the Trump era since obviously he's running still. So there's that aspect of it. And I think that like news organizations like ours, which, are, which I'm happy and proud to be at, are really dedicated to news gathering, making sure that like we are covering the entire world. I mean, you look at our coverage of Israel, we are all over. We have such a huge team in Israel now covering everything that's going on. And obviously, it was such a huge uh, situation happening, a significant situation happening in the House with the speakers race and the chaos there that required a sizable amount of resources and coverage that which CNN was able to provide. So I think it's good to have in big organizations like ours. We are able to cover all those different stories because there's so much more demand for news and there are are the resources to do it. The challenging thing is for smaller organizations, which are being hammered and budget issues. and I mean, all news, news organizations are hit by budget issues, but especially like regional newspapers and the like, and really just having to curtail staff, that really has an impact on, I think, democracy at large and news coverage and viewers and voters. Being able to figure out what's going on
1: so i want you to try to respond to some criticism the first point is about the news in general and you know you all over social media people are like don't watch the news for your mental health the news is all negative they have nothing good to say it's all for advertising what do you have to say to that
0: uh so i don't agree
1: (laughs) okay yeah yeah, of course that's why that's why i want to hear your point of view maybe maybe
0: because i work in the news business I mean, look, you know, I hear stuff like that too. There are terrible stories that we cover, right? I mean, oftentimes very positive stories aren't news, don't make the news, right? We cover wars, we cover mass murders. Things are just really hard for people to process. And it makes total sense that people could get fatigued by that. But it is also kind of our responsibility to make sure we're conveying the fact that whether what's happening in the war that's hurting, killing thousands of people and impacting millions right? and having a huge geopolitical impact and impacting the United States. So viewers need to be aware of everything that's going on, whether it's as unpleasant and terrible as the story might be. In the same way, like for stuff that I cover, typically it's not a, a very happy news story. It's usually fights that are happening in the Capitol, but the fights have larger significance. It is our responsibility to try to explain to viewers why we're covering the story and explain the significance and context about it. Like, I'm not just covering the speaker's race because it's an interesting fight within the Republican Party or it is something that, you know, is just the game of musical chairs or just rearranging the deck chairs of, you know, I don't want to say Titanic, but other people will say Titanic, but they were trying to rearrange the deck chairs The reason why we're covering it so sick is because if there is not a speaker, the entire branch of government is completely stalled. The House can't act unless there's a speaker. So that's why it's significant. They can't pass any legislation. There are huge things they got to deal with, aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, avoiding a government shutdown, major things that have significant consequences in people's lives. So our job is to try to convey that fairly and objectively. As ugly as the story might be, or how the infighting and all that, which is color and interesting and has an impact, but also to just to, to explain to them why they should care about it. I think that is incumbent upon us. And, you know, we we don't always succeed. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't come across that way. But I think that's very, very important for us to do.
1: Democracy, right? Uh, we need it. I guess I also, you know, I believe you have kids. I have two kids. I have a nine and six year old. You're in it. You know, you are you are part of the news. And so, I'm trying to figure out, especially with my nine-year-old, how to explain things to her. She's aware, she's listening, she's hearing, but I get nervous turning on the news in front of them sometimes. How, what do you do? How do you do it?
0: So since I, uh, CNN is on a lot in my household, <laughs> yeah. so my, my kids who are actually they're around the same age, they're almost eight-year-old twins. They turn eight next week, actually. They know the full, they know all the anchors on CNN. Wolf, Jake Tapper, Aaron Burnett, you <laughs> yeah. know, so they, they, they know, yeah. they know all I mean, that. they're part of the
1: family, right? They're part they're of, part the, of the, the CNN family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: It can be hard, especially when, like, terrible stories like the, like the main mass shooting are on. I try not to totally expose them when it's a really, really difficult story. I will try to, maybe, you know, they're watching it. I may, it may change the channel. I try to explain to them things about, you know, why things are bad. And obviously to explain them this is a terrible story and what happened and how horrible everything is. So, and I think that they get it.
1: Probably because also it's coming from you when your father's explaining to you, you're you're being honest, but not, maybe it's not as scary, right? You don't want them to be scared, but you want them to to know what's happening.
0: Yes, I, I think that's right. And then like, I tried to explain to them that stuff that's happening in my world too. Like I was trying to explain to them the limo after Kevin McCarthy was ousted and I tried to explain to them when they were about, country was close to defaulting on its debt. So like they may not care, but I try to at least explain them why I've been so busy and like what I've been covering. But you know, when I'm on TV, they tend to tune me out. So, you know,
1: I'm curious, did you talk to them in detail about January 6th?
0: Yeah. So, you know, my kids knew I was here in the building. I'm in the third floor of the Senate. I'm in the Senate press gallery. We all have our own booths. This is my booth where I was reporting live here. Wow, this is all going on. There's a camera here where I can pop up and do a live shot. I was here for about four hours while the riot was happening, while violence was happening outside this door. I couldn't really hear much of it because I'm a little bit away from the stairwell. Which uh but when I was evacuated out several hours later, that's when I knew just how deadly and how damaging and how destructive everything was and how close it was to, to me. I walked out and I was evacuated and the place was completely in shambles, there had been tear gas emitted, it was just a completely uh a war zone. As I was reporting on TV, it was like it was a war zone that I was walking into. My kids were aware that I was here because my wife was watching TV, making sure that I was you know, she was freaked out and she was nervous about it, of course, understandably so. So she was messaging me, but, you know, I had a false sense of security. I was like, I'm fine. My door's locked. I'm fine. So, like, and thinking that they wouldn't, they couldn't bust down doors, which they were obviously trying to do all over the Capitol and sometimes successfully. But my my kids were at, it was a school day, so they were at school. So, but, you know, it was obviously still rolling coverage and broadcasting live when they got back home from school. So they knew I was here. I explained to them what happened. I explained to them how it was wrong. You know, they got it. I don't think that they were, um, you know, particularly un- uh, unnerved one way or the other. I said, okay. So like they were, they were far less concerned than the rest of my family was.
1: Yeah. Maybe like in like five years when they're looking back at it, they're going to be like, oh, wow. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah.
0: I think I think so. you hope so. They may begin to appreciate a little bit more about it. Yeah. I
1: mean, they definitely will have a record of it all. So (laughs) I still, I mean, you were there, obviously. I mean, as someone just watching from afar, I still can't believe that happened. So I'm glad everything for you turned out okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I was, I was reporting uh, based on my sources and things that I was hearing and things that were, you know, we were, that was coming, coming across our wires, everything that was going on. But again, I was not, it wasn't until days and even months later that I just really recognized just how deadly and how devastating and how dangerous everything was. It just it just did not occur to me in the moment because I was just kind of reporting things as I was seeing it, even though it was, it was as surreal as it was. But how deadly it was, how dangerous it just you just could not appreciate it in the moment.
1: Probably better that way. At the moment, <laughs> in in a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can actually do the reporting and not be wondering about your life. The second point I wanted you to touch upon, if you don't mind, is, you know, now all over social media again, it's all about how news outlets, including CNN, are left-leaning and right-leaning, and, you know, no one's, like, kind of being totally objective. And who do you, know, who do you listen to? Fox, CNN. It's all now split. It feels like it's all split politically. So how do you respond to that?
0: So I think it's unfortunate part about the way that things have gone. People have the media is so fragmented, you know, that people kind of go to their own echo chambers to, to reinforce their beliefs. People can criticize the and however they, they want. But my view of it is that I think that we do the best we can per, compared to our competitors of being as fact based in our reporting as possible. And I think that that really is what drives our news coverage. We have the biggest news gathering operation in the entire world, and we rely on that to drive our news coverage. Yes, there'll be people on our air taking positions, siding one way or the other, and there may be disagreements on how our stories can be framed from time to time. But I can tell you in just the way that I understand this, a news organization operates, the goal is to present the news, break news, tell viewers and readers information they don't know to help them understand a story and a person all that because that's really what we're geared to there are other outlets I don't you can guess who I'm talking about I won't name names who have a come at it with a complete position an effort to try to spin the news one way or the other to reinforce their political arguments that is just not the way we do things it is not I can tell you and just being central to the news of the news gathering operation here. I mean, our newsroom is basically split between news gathering and show production. That's all our and so the news gathering side of which I'm a part and I was on show production cuz I'm an anchor also, but the news production is what drives everything. And our morning conference calls, they our news side explains to the what we're covering on each of our beats and that helps our shows structure their rundowns and decide which reporters they're going to take and how they're going to craft their shows from each hour of news coverage. So that's how things are shaped in our day to day basis. Now, our challenge is, you know, viewers, they're not as in touch with all the minutia, everything that we're doing. They may hear partisans spin us as, oh, you know, attack us one way or the other. And that may help them think that whatever partisan is saying about us is true when it's actually not. But that's our challenge, right? Because people will attack us no matter what, and we just have to just continue to report what we're reporting and not get defensive about it because that's just the nature of the business. So,
1: yeah, it just seems just everyone has a damn opinion nowadays, right? And so just gotta just gotta <laughs> well, just fine. gotta let that's it. Fine. Yeah, it's fine. It is. It and, is what it is. And, and, and like they
0: they should have their opinion. I mean, the challenge is that this like it's gotten so vitriolic in the you know the attacks against the media and like some and people tend to always assume you're coming, you have the worst possible motivation in everything you're doing. When you don't, you know, like, you know, I, my motivation is figuring out what the hell is going on and explaining it to everybody. Like, that's my motivation
1: as the day in, day out. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to do my job. God.
0: Yeah. And you report what someone says. And then People get angry about it and they say, you're only reporting this because you want to make Democrats look bad or you want to make Republicans look bad. It's like, that's not really what it is. I'm reporting what the speaker is saying because we should know what the speaker thinks about this. Okay, so people always be upset no matter what what you say.
1: It's a it's a word called facts, reporting facts, guys. (laughs) I want to talk to you, of course, you know, I'm interviewing South Asian trailblazers, so we got to take the South Asian angle a little bit here. You are known in the many articles I've read as a reporter who can find out what politicians are discussing behind the scenes. Um, you know, I've YouTubed a lot of your interviews. One of my favorite questions you've asked, I'm not sure which who it was, but you ask someone, what did you get out of this? And I loved that you, it's just so straight to the point. And it's, it's such a great question. And I think you've also had to deal with some interesting characters, like being called a liberal hack by McSally, you know, for asking a very basic question, the awkward 90 seconds you were trying to get Santos to talk and he was just not turning around. I was like, what's happening here? And my, one of my favorite, the YouTube video that came up was your fun behind the scenes Cicada, cicada, in the, the huge bug that was on you. Right. I was like, I love oh, this. Yeah. Anyway, so I was just, you know, trying to, be in,
0: That will be in my obituary. Yeah, so. that
1: came up quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't seem, and you've said this, I'm not a gotcha reporter, right? You're not trying to, like, catch someone off and, and trying to get this negative response for, from them just for no reason. I'm assuming that's just part of your personality, how you view reporting. I'm wondering if being South Asian and being one of the few South Asians in the space has anything to do with the way you approach your interviews. Do you ever feel like because you're one of the few people of color, I mean, there's more and more now, but maybe one of the few South Asians out there in this position, you have to be a little bit careful on how you report?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And as I was saying, yeah. It's amazing how much you may do in your career, but having one gigantic bug crawl on you defines <laughs> yeah. your life's work. I know. I was so, like, why does this video like... keep coming up? I got it. <laughs> it's, it's really remarkable. I know. I do think that when I first started in the Congressional Press Corps, and look, I've been covering Washington for the past 21 years, and I've been covering the Hill about 18 of those 21 years, and there were very few people of color. It was mostly men back then. It's become much more diverse since then, the more, many more women. are still fewer people of color than there should be, so it's not uh, particularly ethnically diverse, and there just aren't that many South Asians still. There are a handful of us who are up here. I've always thought this, ever since I was a kid growing up in mostly white suburbs of Chicago at the time, you know, growing up all the way through here, is that people May, who may not know many Indian people, not many know many Indian Americans, they may judge how you act and think that's how all Indians act. And that's kind of how I view it up here, too. Like, I think that people may not, read, you know, may not stare, intentionally try to stereotype you and say, all Indians act like that way, but it may have created some impression of how Indians behave, right? So I a sort of added responsibility to conduct myself in a certain way because I don't want people to have a negative view of Indians just because I'm being a jerk you know so it doesn't always come across that way sometimes I'll I' be a jerk anyways but I do think that is and you know, that's part of you know being a South Asian in a position like this is that you just you have to recognize that you 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 know people they will view you uh especially if especially they don't see many of us out there in a certain way, so you have a you need you'd be mindful of that.
1: My gut feeling, I mean, having just met you, but my gut feeling is you just actually seem like a nice guy, and and many people that have talked about you have said the same thing. So I'm sure it's it's also personality as well. But yeah, I feel like people in your position that are South Asian tend to tiptoe maybe a little bit more than their peers that are not. I wonder when that's going to change, or if or if it needs to. I don't know.
0: We're still a very small minority compared to others, and obviously South Asians are going you know more prominent and you know when we were growing up, I'm sure you had the same experience. most of our parents were doctors or engineers, or they encouraged their kids to be doctors or engineers, so you don't really see many going into the spaces that we're in, but that's that is changing, so I think that that, will, that could have an impact, but it'll take some time.
1: Yeah, I, I, was a, I was the black sheep in our family, and I went to law school. So I, I, didn't, I didn't quite make the doctor <laughs> route. I did organic chem my freshman year. I went to UT. Got... A C or D. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm done. I think the doctor route's done. Good, good to go. <laughs> let's let's move on from this.
0: Organic chemistry was one of the reasons why I didn't become a doctor. Either, Thank so, you. Yeah. See,
1: I feel so much better about my life. After this podcast, I've realized there's so many Indians that were getting C's on organic chem. And I was like, okay, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> let's talk about your growing up a little bit. You had mentioned in, in an interview, you didn't really know what you wanted to do growing up either. Um, I also did business and econo- I did a business degree at UT, but your writing roots, you know, extend to your late grandfather. I'm going to, I don't want to debauch his, Gopal, Gopal Krishna, Gopalakrishna? Gopala Krishna Adhika is, uh, Adh- is his is okay. I lived in Bangalore for two years, so I should be able oh, to do this. Oh, but really? uh, Yeah, I did. I did. You speak you speak Canada? I'm Gujarati, but we were in India for three years for my husband's job. He's with Pepsi. And we did a three-year expat stint in India and then a two-year in Dubai. But absolutely love, loved Bangalore. Just loved it. It was it was it was fantastic. So your 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 grandfather is a legendary poet, your dad is a neonatologist, your brother is a film and TV director, your sister-in-law is Valerie Kaur. Like what like, can I come to your Thanksgiving dinners? Like, this, is, what are you, what are you, what are you guys drinking in your family here?
0: <laughs> and, and and my wife is a mechanical engineer turned entrepreneur who flies uh, with a pilot's license. So you know, she she outdoes all. of So she's that. like the highest badass. Uh, then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It is a unique family. I appreciate you calling you saying that.
1: But you know, I had a very uh, my
0: childhood was like. Most uh, Indian kids of our generation. I mean, like I my parents moved here in the 70s. My dad came here first as a doctor. He was getting his uh, fellowship from Chicago and later married my mom. My mom moved here. They didn't know anybody. Then other Indians moved in. You know, there were friends, including our mutual friend, uh, the bots. They moved to the Chicago area. And like there's a small group of, who were uh, of Indians. And then I grew up in a pretty much all-white Catholic suburb of Chicago. All my friends were Italians or Poles or Irish. There were hardly any Indian friends that I had in my school, in my grade school. Uh, and then junior high, too, was similar. It wasn't really until high school that I had other Indian a, a sizable amount of Indian kids in my high school. But really, all throughout my early parts of my childhood, I did not. So I really assimilated... Pretty quickly to American culture, my parents slower to assimilate to American culture. Although they, although they ultimately did, so you know there was always that tension about like it being like one, being like you know the only brown kid, South Indian kid, only Hindu when with a bunch of Catholics, a bunch of white. Kids who had their own cultures and customs, and I was that I was not a part of. Although I was a part of all other aspects of American culture, I played sports, I did all that with my friends. So you know that is for our generation. That's always a challenge, right? I mean, especially in those times. Now it's so much different, right? Even if you were similar situation, if your parents were immigrating from India, now yes, it's always challenged immigration, immigrating to a new country, always a challenge, and. I applaud those who do it. I really applaud my parents for rolling the dice and coming to the U.S. the way they did. But there's so much more understanding of Indian culture now than there was back then. I mean, I remember people growing up or didn't know if I was Native American or Indian or American. One friend's dad asked me if I was feather or dot, you know? So, like, I mean, the people did not know who, what India was. So that is much different now for the most part, I think. I think. And my kids' school, you know, they do Diwali every year. They have Ganesh Chaturthi. They have a thing they do. Like, they didn't do any of that when I was a kid. But that's fine. I mean, like, that was part of the challenge of growing up uh, in our generation, being the first year to be born and raised in the U.S. So, you know, but I think that all, like, really helped my upbringing and really helped me shape my understanding of who I am and also forced me to be as hardworking as I am because I saw, you know, kind of the way my parents they gritted it out from coming to like my dad who grew up in a small village in India and worked his way up and really succeeded in the U S and, you know, I think that has an impact on your psyche and, and your upbringing as well.
1: I always say it builds character. Like the, all of us, I grew up in the eighties. Like, we we had a lot of character building moments, I feel like, and, and like you, I, you know, I grew up in a very white area in Houston Did a lot of the Hindu camp stuff, Hindu classes on Sundays to kind of keep connected. And like you, sports for me was my connection to all the non-Indian kids. I played tennis a lot, uh, middle school, high school. And so I I think a lot of us have that kind of same story. I know you're a long-suffering Chicago sports fan. And, uh, you know, whenever we do have time next time, remind me to tell you my Michael Jordan story. Bavana was actually, I was rooming with her at that time. <laughs> really? And I have the best Michael Jordan story, I think, of someone who's never like worked with him of all time. Just throwing it out there. Just, why
0: did it make oh you a little bit jealous? <laughs> how, could, how could you tease me like that? I need to know all the information here.
1: Basically, it ends up with uh, me and my best friend partying with him and his frat brothers for the entire night. It was like a reunion. I used to bartend in Chicago during law school. I was a terrible bartender, but I, you know, because when you bartend, you start making other bartending friends. Some of my bartending friends told me that this group of guys, actually, it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a whole 20 minute story, but I ended up, yeah, we ended up partying with, it was Jordan, his frat brothers, me, my best friend, and a bunch of blonde chicks. And it was awesome. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> what year was this? 2000. I was in Chicago, 03 to 06. So either 04 or 05, something like that.
0: Okay, so this was after, after the, the championship years, after yes, retirement, retired.
1: Yes, he must have been oh, divorced oh. by that time, too. So uh, he did give me a high five, he gave me a hug, he asked us how our night was, and me and my best friend died.
0: <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm, highly, I'm highly jealous. We should yes. do the whole podcast and just talk about this.
1: I could, I could do a whole episode with you and just, yeah, I just, just want to throw it in there just to make you do a little jealous. I want to know who you were in high school. So if we had to breakfast club, the categories who were you in high school because I know you play sports I know you're the only Indian kid did you date did you have did you go to prom if I met you back then
0: so yeah I was I did play sports I was I did football I played basketball I ran track so I was I used to be fast and athletic before I became old and injury prone <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: that, like, that all us, like all of us like all of us yeah yes
0: exactly so I did that was like that was my outlet sports I did go to all the dances so I had like kind of two sets of friends. I had my friends in sports and in high school, and then I had my, my family friends who were predominantly my Indian friends and my youth group friends. I got more involved in my youth group growing up. In high school, I eventually my senior year, I was president of our youth group, and we had our annual cultural show that we were heavily involved with. So I, grew more, I embraced more of my Indian roots and heritage in high school, no question about it i not nearly as much before then. As I was, you know, as a kid, you're trying to figure out who you are and fit in. In high school, of course, you're trying to fit into, but I felt like as you get more mature, you start to appreciate that you're being different is good. It's good to have your unique identity. And I started to appreciate that more as I grew older in high school, as I got more involved in my youth group and became really close friends with a lot of my friends there. So while I was in high school, I was a very active both on socially and with uh, sports and with my youth group. And then by the time I was about to graduate, I didn't really know what I wanted to do still. I thought that maybe I wanted to go into business because I enjoyed my running, being in charge of the president of my youth group. I liked, like, maybe I like business management. So Wisconsin had a great business management school, business school, an awesome campus. Love Madison, great sports scene. I'm a huge sports fan and a great school. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Wisconsin. I had an amazing four years there. And really that set the course for my career because I, even though I got my business degree, I started off my freshman year, I wanted to do an extracurricular. So I decided to write for my student paper, which I'd never done before. And I covered sports. I got more involved covering sports. And then by the time I graduated, I was like, you know what? I, this journalism thing is pretty cool. Maybe I want to be a journalist. So if I had not decided just randomly to... Right for my student paper. Who knows where it had ended up? But that's really why I set my life course from my time in Wisconsin. So it's just amazing those decisions that you make that you may not think is that are significant in your life that set you on a certain trajectory. But here we are.
1: You know what? My my career started at Enron, and I'm here right now. So <laughs> oh wow! I, I went amazing. from Enron to backup Bollywood dancer for a year to law school. I don't even know. Money, it's a whole, yeah, my, res- my resume is like, it's a big WTF. Like, what is she doing exactly? The past 14 years, because of my husband's job, we've moved around seven times. And so I've had many, many careers, wow. which is why the podcast started, because I was like, I need to do something like where I can pick up and go. And so uh, this this has worked out for me now. <laughs> that works, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, we're going to, I know we're, we're almost uh, at the end of time here. I want to do a quick fast round. You obviously are... The reporting, the news, it's, it's pretty heavy stuff. What do you do to unplug? What's your guilty pleasure?
0: I love to play golf. I try to enjoy, is that guilty? Um, uh, and maybe it is. You know, I do enjoy spending time with my kids who are almost eight. Uh, it's really fun. I, I coach uh, their, their teams, their soccer team, their baseball team when I can, when I, when I have time. So I really enjoy all of that. I enjoy uh, having drinks with friends and dinner and drinks with friends. I enjoy going on an awesome vacations. We went to Italy this year. So, you know, I just, I try to live, I try to really have a fun, eventful free time. as such a limited free time I have. I don't want to necessarily just be sitting around. I want to do something fun. I want to have a new experience. And I kind of live by the mantra of work hard, play hard. That's just kind of my mindset and i just want to like i work hard at work i want to have a great time out of work and whether it's out with friends or out with my kids or yeah just enjoying time on the golf course something enjoyable
1: i was hoping you would tell me you were like obsessed with the real housewives or something but i'll I'll take that answer (laughs) 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 i was like what is what is the dumbest stuff he can watch because he's like reporting (laughs) on the most intense stuff in the world so what is your biggest pet peeve
0: laziness maybe i mean i just like in all aspects of 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 life you know when people are just intentionally being lazy that bothers me because i feel like that's just not the way i'm wired i feel like when someone is lazy whether it's at work or someone does it impacts the people who are working hard so i would say that's that is a pet peeve
1: all right i like it since you are such a big sports fan if you could work with, collab with, interview one athlete, who would it be? Michael Jordan. Okay. You. Yay. 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 There you go. <laughs> I'll I'll put in a good word for you. I'll <laughs> I'll let, I'll let him know.
0: <laughs> he was my boyhood idol and he's still my idol, so you know.
1: I didn't tell you the one part of the story where I slapped him on the ass by accident. Yeah. Well, we'll have to talk more. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> by wow, accident. I didn't, I didn't know it was him. I swear. And then my best friend was like, did you know what you just did? I was like, nope. Do not know. <laughs> These are the things you can do when you're oh 25 boy. and you're single. It's fine. <laughs> wow. What okay. If you weren't doing this, your job, current job right now, anything with journalism, what else would you be doing?
0: Uh, the scoreboard operator at Wrigley Field.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. You already knew, you already knew that.
0: <laughs> you know, that's the manual scoreboard where they put the numbers up. And, you know, there's only one of two manual scoreboards still in all of baseball. I got to tell you, I mean, I've always wanted that job. Although I went on a ballpark tour of Wrigley this summer and they told me they don't have any ventilation, no ventilation. And no bathrooms up there. So the working conditions might be a little tough, but it would still be fun to go to Wrigley every day.
1: I still think you would do it. Yeah, look, I became a big Cubbies fan when I was living there. And so that would be very, very cool. I mean, I'm still, I'm from Houston. So still, those are my teams, but the Chicago teams are are right up there. Okay, and this is the last question. And you might laugh at me and tell me, "Heck, heck no. Would you be able to say anything in Canada?
0: Oh my can you, god. Can can you speak? Uh, <laughs> I, I could say Hegidira, which means Hegidira. You know? All right. Hey, see, deera. you did it. You did I'm, it. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Nina Hesru Yenu, which means what's your name? My Kannada speaking skills have unfortunately they're not as what they once were. When my mom speaks to me in Kannada, I can generally I can understand what she's saying. When big groups of people are speaking, I have a harder time speaking. I, I can read Kannada, and I can't really understand when I'm reading it, exactly what it says. Um, my, you know, As you mentioned, my grandfather was a famous poet in Kannada in and writer, and his works are still studied in Karnataka, schools in Karnataka uh, today. You know, I wish I could read his Kannada poetry, which is some of the best, but they have they've translated a lot of those versions, so I've been able to still appreciate his work, uh, even, even though there's some, something that's lost in translation from Canada to English but it's still nice to appreciate hey, it hey you
1: know what Man, it's never too late to learn my friend you can still do it yeah
0: exactly you may, you may not be able to teach an old dog like me new tricks but you never know well, I know
1: hey, we're, we're the same we're the same old dogs don't worry I got, I got <laughs> it <laughs> well I really really appreciate your time it was so awesome meeting you and just congrats on everything and good luck with everything on scene and hopefully one day we get to meet in real life
0: yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much. Yes. It was great Thank you, to
1: Manu. You. Yeah, it was great talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram and please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast.